Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, please be the center of attention. We're so subject to distractions. I'm the worst at that. Help us to focus on you, your goodness, your faithfulness. Let us rest our problems, Lord, down at your feet and not pick them back up ourselves, Lord, but let them rest with you under your care. Thank you for those who are here for the first time. May they hear your voice clearly, lovingly, faithfully to draw them into the good life that you've planned for them. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was in junior high school, my parents moved back from Mexico where we'd been missionaries, and for a little while I was kind of enthralled because the, the church, one of the churches we were affiliated with during our time in the United States, the pastor who was a friend of my parents was kind of a minor celebrity, at least in my world. He was the first person I knew personally to ever go on TV. You ever had that experience of having someone you know and you see them on TV? and you're pointing to people, that's my friend, right? Because of transferred greatness, right? Because the greatest thing that could ever happen to any American is be on TV. And if you're not on TV, at least your friend could be, and you could say, that's my friend, and you're kind of associated with the glamour, right? Well, he was invited to a national talk show to present the Christian side of a hot-button topic. And everybody was nervous on the front side because we knew that the host wasn't fair. He liked to stack, you know, six voices on his side of the argument and invite some poor sucker to present all by himself the answer. And everybody crowded around the television set. And then, sadly, to everybody's disappointment, our friend didn't do too well. It kind of went very poorly. And I don't know if you've ever had that experience where... Somebody has this fairly public failure, and then they re-engage with you, and you don't know whether to bring it up and tell them you're sorry, because maybe they think they actually did well. It's awkward. Have you ever had this situation? Happens a lot after school plays, okay? Um, (laughs) Speaking as the kid who once forgot his lines. um, And then we started talking to him about it, or the the grown-ups did at least, and come to find out he really didn't do that poorly at all. Through the magic of editing, because the show wasn't live, a lot of the things he said just ended up on the cutting room floor. So when the counter-argument was presented, that cut to a shot of him looking puzzled. And so it went. It just didn't go that well at all. I'm telling you that story because all too often that's exactly what people do with Jesus and his words. Now, Jesus isn't on film. But his words were faithfully written down in the Gospels. These are historical documents we're looking at. They're actually the most well-attested, the most well-verified ancient documents by far. We have far more confidence in what Jesus said rather than what Julius Caesar said and did. So we know what he said. And people quote him where we begin reading today in Luke's Gospel. They quote him accurately, but they take the slightest portion of what he said and completely miss what he meant. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Look with me in Luke chapter 6. Because what Jesus is after here, he's telling his disciples, in other words, people who have turned their lives over to him, people who have trusted him for the forgiveness of their sins, who've made him not only Savior but boss, and this very famous Sermon on the Mount 
Luke is telling you with the accuracy of a, of a historian who interviewed those who were present. He's telling you what Jesus said and did that day, and he's telling them how to live. He's telling us how to live if you're following Jesus. He's going to give them four very pointed instructions, and every time he gives an instruction, he's also going to give a promise with it. Because Jesus knows better than anyone how hard it's going to be for his disciples to live this out. Because once you start reading what Jesus said and you kind of take him out of these cheesy pictures and you actually deal with them as a real person and not something stuffed in the back of a Hallmark card bin, you find out that it's, it's difficult to take him seriously and actually carry out into practice what he told you to do. And he knows that. He also knows that if you dare to trust him and live the way he told you to, that you'll be the most blessed person of all, that you'll create all kinds of goodness in your own life and in the lives of others. And these things are difficult because they're exactly backwards from the way the world has taught us to live. They're contrary to our own selfish nature. But before I deal with the four and put them together, I need to clear up what Jesus said first because that's the part that is quoted but so often misapplied. Jesus said in Luke 6, verse 37, if you don't have a Bible, please feel free to use one of ours. And if you need one, take it home with you, please, as our gift. Luke 6, 37, Jesus says, judge not. Have you heard that one quoted out in the world? Usually, people are doing something that they know is pretty bad, and somebody mentions it, and they say, now, uh, uh, you're a Christian, right? Jesus, your boss said, do not judge. And it's a shutdown argument. You can't say anything else. Judge not, Jesus said, and you will not be judged. So, before we deal with all that he taught here, I have to ask this question because it's so often misused. Is Jesus actually telling us to suspend moral judgment? Do you think that's what Jesus wants us to do? Just on the front side, that can't possibly be what he meant, right? He can't possibly be telling people who live in a world filled with good and evil to go through the world and not make any calls about what's right and wrong. Can't be what it means. I'm going to suggests that not only shouldn't you and that that's not what he meant, but you actually can't do that. The truth of life as we experience this is you walk through life continually making judgments about what is right and wrong. Now, what I'm most keenly tuned to is when I'm sinned against. I'm not so clear when I'm blowing it with others, but when you blow it against me, I get that immediately. You know what I'm talking about? We're hardwired for justice. If you don't understand and believe just how intrinsically, inevitably, human beings see the difference between right and wrong, just go to any preschool. You'll see that beginning at the age of two, all the way up through preschool, large protestations at the top of very shrieky little voices are made all day long in a preschool. That's not right. That's mine. Stop it. Give it back. All day long, kids who are two, three years old are making moral judgments. That must not be what Jesus meant. Judge not, and you will not be judged. So, no, it's not what he meant. We can't, and we shouldn't. 
Jesus said in the Gospel of John this. He said in John 7, verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Do not judge by appearances. On the contrary, make the right call. Judge with right judgment. So, what exactly is going on here? Is Jesus contradicting Himself? No, the very next phrase and the rest of this chapter tells me what He's talking about. Look back at verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. The second instruction that is basically a mirror or a synonym of the first gives me an idea of what Jesus means, as does the rest of the chapter. Look at verse 39. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? If you take time to read this, and we won't, what Jesus is talking about is when you listen to people for spiritual wisdom, make sure that you pick somebody who can actually see reality. Because if you choose a blind man to guide you, and you need guidance because you're blind yourself, if you've got a blind guy leading you down the road, you're both going to end up in a pit. And he keeps making, let, let me just read the rest of you, this, and let me ask you if it sounds like Jesus is making moral judgments. Verse 41, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see that a log that is in your own eye, you hypocrite? Does that sound like a moral judgment to you? <laughs> Jesus is looking at someone saying, you're a hypocrite. It's classic first century Jewish humor, by the way. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Can you see this word picture? A guy's got a telephone pole jutting out of his eye. And he's struggling along with it, and he says, hey, I see that your left eye's bothering you. I think you've got something in it. Here, hold the log on your shoulder, and I'll get that out for you. Oh, Jesus is making all kinds of moral judgments. Look at verse 43. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does again, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is known by its own fruit. And, of course, he's using a word picture for people's lives. Some people's lives produce poisonous, rotten fruit. The lives of others are fragrant, and they nurture and protect and care for other people. All the way through this, Jesus is making the difference between right and wrong. Here's the most pointed one of all, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock, and when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Does it sound to you like Jesus knows the difference between good building and bad building? Absolutely. He's inviting you again in word pictures to say, I'm telling you what good life is. I'm telling you what spiritual reality is like, but some of you will be like foolish people. You'll listen to all this, you'll even call me boss, but then you'll go on with your own lives. You won't do the hard work of obeying me, 
and you'll build a house without a foundation. And for a short time, it will look good. But then the storm will come and knock your house flat, and you'll be ruined. The people on the contrary who hear me, just like the first group, but actually do the hard work of digging deep and building their life on me, when the storm comes against them, everything will be fine because you built well. You built on something that could sustain you. More on that in the future, but friends, every single one of us is building in the face of an oncoming storm called death. This week, a a dear friend, a man we love very much in this church named Farrell Buckles went to be with the Lord. He had a literally heroic, his own police department said, legendary career, dealing with some of the ugliest stuff on earth. And what gives this family that I love so much hope and security is the sure knowledge that his life was built on Christ. It wasn't built on himself. It wasn't built on achievement, as great as those were. He had a solid foundation. Jesus knows the difference between life and death. He knows the difference between truth and lies. He's not telling His disciples to suspend moral judgment. What He is saying is in the very next phrase, judge not and you will not be judged, condemn not and you will not be condemned. What He's trying to tell us is this, you are not the judge. You have to make moral decisions. You have, to make discern, you have to make discerning calls. But in all of this, you have to remember you're not the judge of all the earth. There is one who is the judge, and you're not he. Someone said one of the chief differences between God and us is God never gets confused and thinks he's us. We so quickly want to take his place. That's why Jesus starts with the most human experience of all, which is the judgmental, condemning nature that is found in every human heart. The moral discernment that God has wired into us very quickly moves over into judgment, condemnation, harsh criticism, and self-righteousness. So self-righteous that you can actually have a log jutting out of your head and you want to help everybody else deal with the speck. In Saturday Night Live, unfortunately, memorialized a character, a very comic character. It won't be known to everybody, but maybe through YouTube, just about everybody's seen her. Dana Carvey created a very self-righteous, judgmental, hilariously critical person that we all know as the the church lady. Isn't that great? Not the PTA lady. Not the soccer mom, not the little league mom, the church lady. Think about what that means that Christians, the disciples of Jesus, have projected out into the world. What have we told the world that we're harsh critics, that we're quick to judge, that we're quick to condemn? And Jesus is saying, you can't, you're not actually the judge. James, a family member of Jesus, one of his first followers explained it like this in James chapter 4, verse 12. Read this with me, please. James wrote this, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor?" Get the point? There's one lawgiver and judge. And the way you'll know him is he is the only one who is able to save and destroy people. That's the nature of being a judge. You can save somebody's life with right judgment, or you can destroy somebody's life with right judgment. You can end it. 
That's what judges do. That's why we have such respect for them. That's why nobody wants to be hauled into any kind of court, particularly a criminal court, which could deprive you of freedom or even your very life. James says there's one lawgiver and one judge. He is the one who is able to save and destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? And if you remember what your English teacher tried to tell you in high school, that's a rhetorical question, a question whose answer is so obvious you don't really need to say it. What's James trying to tell us? Who are we to judge our neighbor? We're nobody. It's not our place. But we so quickly and easily want to take God's place. That's why the caricature of the church lady exists. And you've ever encountered Christians like that? And if I was one of them particularly, because I can be, I'm sorry. You got a really bad picture of Jesus. Jesus himself, who's entitled to judge, before whom one day every knee will bow, Jesus in his grace and love reserves judgment and puts it off for one simple reason. Peter, one of his first disciples, says, God is not slow in keeping his promises. On the contrary, he's patient because he wants no one to die. He wants everyone instead to come to repentance. If you have life and breath this morning and you're not absolutely sure of the forgiveness of God, there's only one reason. He wants you to have it. He's giving you time to hear of His love and His goodness and His faithfulness. He wants you to remember the story of Easter, which is that Jesus died for your sins specifically, the dark things, the shameful things, the things that have caused trouble in your marriage, the things that bum you out about yourself, the things you wish you could change and you haven't. Or maybe you have changed some of those things, but they're still with you and they still do some damage. All of those things were the things that Jesus took to the cross to die in your place. He offers instead of death, he offers eternal life. And what he's telling his disciples is that judgment, that salvation and judgment belong only to one, and you're not the one. It's not your place. I had lunch this week with a stranger because... We have a good mutual friend, and I thought this guy, because of his track record, could help me a little bit spiritually and understand some things, and our church is, is working in. And I'm not too mystical, but I don't believe in coincidences either. He gave me a wonderful little reading, just seemingly out of the blue, from a devotional writer named Oswald Chambers. He puts his finger on the difference between discernment which is what God wants us to have, and judgment, which is what God didn't give us. Listen. Chambers wrote, when we discern that other people are not growing spiritually, and we allow that discernment to turn to criticism, we block our fellowship with God. God never gives us discernment so that we may criticize, but so that we may intercede. Ouch. See, because what's so easy for Christians, hence the church lady, is to see what the other guy's doing wrong and use that insight, even if it's true, to say, ah, oh, you poor devil. Mm -mm -mm. I remember being like you. What a shame. Stupid, helpless, all these ugly things. No, Chambers says, if you have discernment, if you understand spiritual reality, God's not taking, not putting you in His place. He's not inviting you into the throne of judgment so that you can make the call and condemn this person. 
Jesus explicitly said, don't do that. He's giving you discernment so that you may intercede for them. In other words, so that you may speak to God for them and about them. But it's so much more fun to talk to people about people rather than to God about people, right? See, Jesus in every one of these things is trying to cultivate the right spirit in his disciples, and that spirit is generosity. What ties these four instructions together is generosity. Look again at verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. He goes on, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So let's do a little Bible study here together. Jesus is telling His disciples four things, four instructions that they are to live by that turn the world's order and the world, the way the world is wired, the way we were taught to live, the way our selfish nature teaches us to live upside down. He says, first of all, there's two things you don't do. What are they? You don't judge and you don't condemn. Two ways really of saying the same thing. Don't take God's place. Then he says, third thing is, you actively do what? You forgive, and then you give. Now, this will be fun. Of those four things, which is more, I want you to just answer for yourself, but say it out loud. Of those four things, which is more difficult for you? That was the worst participation we've ever had. (laughs) in the history of this church. This is one of those rare times that I actually want everybody to speak at once, just a single word. It's not hard. Judge, condemn, give, or forgive. Of those four, which is more difficult for you? Did you hear the muttering? There were different answers. That means that based on your temperament and based on your life history and the hurt that has been done to you, some of these things will be easier and some will be more difficult. Jesus put them all together because He wants to make a point. If you're following Jesus, He wants you to be generous in all of life. He's been generous with you in every way. He wants you as His disciple to be generous with everybody. In other words, Christian, you don't get to choose. You don't get to be someone who generously writes checks and is a famous giver who burns with resentment against other people. You don't get to be a great lover and forgiver of human beings and be stingy and hang on to everything you've been given. You don't get to be generous with money or with time or with forgiveness, but stand in critical judgmental condemnation and harsh criticism of other people. Jesus is trying to develop disciples that are generous in every single way, in spirit and in attitude. And probably the one that is most difficult for most people is this simple instruction in verse 38, in verse 37 at the end, rather, where he says, forgive and you will be forgiven. Jesus actually knows what the good life is. It's amazing how often people ask who is intelligent and the name of Jesus never comes up. People will think of Bill Gates before they think of Jesus. 
But he actually knows spiritual reality. He knows how everything fits together. He knows what life is. And he's telling his disciples, for everyone's good and primarily for the good of the disciple, as you follow me, you proactively forgive others. I can't tell you how important that is. When I first started pastoring this church, I think for five consecutive years, not out of laziness, but out of genuine conviction that it needed to be said over and over again, I preached the same sermon once a year from the same passage and even explained I'm doing it again. And if you were here, I'm sorry, but it probably wouldn't hurt to refresh this biblical idea. And that is, if you don't actively forgive people, you'll be bound in resentment and bitterness. A root of bitterness will wrap itself around your life forever. Let me be really explicit about that. I don't know all of your stories. I know a few, but I don't know all of your stories. But some of you have been greatly hurt and betrayed by other people. And you're sitting there waiting for an apology. It's very likely, if it hasn't come yet, that it never will. Some of you have been hurt by people who can no longer apologize because they're dead. And they will never apologize to you. They can't. It's, it's an impossibility. See, when we refuse to forgive other people, what we do with the evil that they've done against us is bind it like a chain around our neck so that any time the memory of what was done against us is aroused, we get yanked right back into that moment. And you may experience that as anger or resentment or profound sadness and disappointment and a sense of loss, but in every case, the captivity is the same. And here's the point, the captivity is yours. I'm not saying they were right. I'm saying you need to forgive them. This is why Jesus gives this instruction. This is why he lived it out literally till his last moments on the cross. Even as he was being killed by professional executioners named Roman soldiers, he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And all the evil and the wicked that they've done, God, at least in this case, Father, this one thing, don't put this on their account because they're doing it in ignorance. He's picturing for us what it means to forgive. And some people will say, and they'll be bound the rest of their lives, all apologize when they say they're sorry. Well, what if they don't? You see, some people are so bound up in wickedness that they're, medically speaking, they're sociopaths. They have no natural empathy. They hurt people and they don't even think about it. It doesn't affect them. It's entirely possible in your case that whoever it is that has been hurting you, they've already moved on to the next victim. They're no longer thinking about you. Now, God may work in their heart as He worked in yours and turn them around, but if you condition their repentance to your forgiveness, you may be waiting for the rest of your life and may be victimized by resentment at any moment. So what does that look like? Let me make it as practical as I can for you, as I was taught years ago, and it's made a big difference. Whatever was done to you comes back up in your memory, and you feel the old familiar anger, the emptiness, the sorrow. And in that moment, you go to Jesus, and you say, Jesus, it's me again. I remember what they did. Here's how it hurt. Here's how it's making me feel. I'm letting them off the hook. I'm forgiving them. I'm canceling the debt that they have with me in your name. And here's the key part. 
I'm turning them over to you. See, you don't want to forgive, and I don't want to forgive. It's not natural because it stops justice. If you know you've been wronged, and if you've really been wronged, if you've been abused or neglected, if actual crimes have been committed against you, people hold on to that resentment because they think if I forgive them, then they're going to get away with it, right? I'm not going to forgive them because I don't want them to get away with it. Listen, when you forgive someone, what that literally means is you cancel the debt that they have with you. You need to do that. It will give you freedom. You cannot cancel the debt and the appointment that they have with God. When you forgive someone else, even someone who isn't telling you they're sorry, what you're doing is committing them to the care and the judgment of God. And they will receive from God one of two things, the judgment they richly deserved or the same exact mercy, love, and forgiveness that God gave you. In either case, it's not your call. And you can trust the judge of the earth to do exactly what's right. He won't be too harsh and he'll never be lenient. The story of the gospel, if it hasn't been explained to you in clear language, is that Jesus saw you lost in your sin, calling your own shots, running your own life, running your own show, and he saw you far away from him and in love because, as that song says, Jesus did not want to have heaven. He deserved it. It's his. He made it. But he didn't want to have heaven without you. Think about how much love that is. So he died for your sin so that he can actually eternally cancel every debt you have with God and welcome you into his home. That's going to make the difference. When you extend that same forgiveness to other people and you turn them over to God, something marvelous happens. You're free. You go, well, I've done that, and it keeps coming back. Do that as often as it takes. Do that for the next two years until finally you leave them in the care and the judgment of God and you stop taking them back from God. You ever turn somebody over to God and then run to get them back? God, you're taking too long. I'd like a chance with them, please. I'll just give them to God. The judge of all the earth will never do what's wrong. He's extending them mercy the same way he's extending you mercy, to bring them to repentance. It's not in your power to make them repent. You can turn them safely over to him. If they're not on this earth, then they've already met God. And they've asked his forgiveness and received a mercy that you know nothing of that you will one day celebrate with them, or they've met his judgment, which if you truly knew it, you would never wish upon them no matter what they've done to you. That's why Jesus told his disciples, forgive and you will be forgiven. The last instruction is the most difficult for people. For some people, it's the hardest way to learn to be generous. He said in verse 38, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. That's interesting. Here's why you should be generous, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, I notice that in all these promises, if Jesus says, if you'll trust me, this is a hard word this is a solid foundation. It'll take you time and effort to dig down into it and base your life upon it. But if you do, you'll receive the same blessing that I'm telling you to give others. You'll get the same generosity that I'm telling you 
to give other people. If you refuse to judge, you won't be judged. If you refuse to condemn, you won't be condemned. If you give forgiveness, you'll receive forgiveness. And if you give, people will be generous with you. And did you notice in verse 38, he kind of went into detail? Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. Every time I read this verse, I can't help but think this is how the Garner boys at our house take out the trash, or at least deal with the trash. We'll say to one of the children, one of them present, sorry, son, <laughs> pay you later. We have this deal that I have to pay him every time I mention him in public. <laughs> I'll say to one of the children, hey, would you take the trash out? Don't need to, it's only half full. <laughs> well, yeah. Now that you've become a human trash compactor and push materials so close together that we nearly created an explosion in the kitchen, sure, it's half full. Jesus, because Jesus knows how hard it is for his disciples to be generous givers, he says, Look, if you give, People will give to you very generously, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. The first century picture is just as funny. It pictures a first century Jewish man bending down, grabbing the edges of his robe, making a giant bowl with him, and then having something poured into that little bowl so that he waddles out of there spilling whatever he was given. That's the picture. And you don't need to know Greek in the New Testament to read the Bible, but it, it, there's actually an interesting little detail here that this translation does not include. Let me read it to you the way it would read in Greek. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will they put into your lap. They, not he. In other words, people, not God. Jesus is making an extraordinary promise. If you will cultivate a heart of generosity, if you will give generously, God will work in the hearts of other people to give you blessings and things that you do not deserve, who are, that you're actually more than you're going to be able to handle. And I never want to make a sermon about me. These little personal stories are only to illustrate and to tell you some little experience that we've had with the truth of God. But I can tell you, on both sides of our families for three generations now, since Jesus interrupted and completely changed the course of our family's life on both sides, the story of our family for three generations on mom's side and dad's side is our family has received lavish treatment from all kinds of people, many of them strangers, many of them unbelievers. And God simply gave three generations of our family grace in the sight of other people, and it's called grace because we didn't deserve it. All kinds of things. Opportunities, help, advantages, money, all kinds of things that people have it within their power to give, they will give, Jesus says, to the generous disciples who are willing to trust Jesus and become generous themselves. He makes it really clear at the end of the verse. He says, with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Can I just be really practical? For some of you to experience the power of God in your life, you just need a bigger scoop. Because God has lavished things into your life and you're dishing them out and giving them back to God and giving them into the lives of other people with a teaspoon. And that's how you give. Jesus says, get a bigger scoop. 
Take a bigger measure from the things that God has given you, your time, your talent, your money. Give generously and watch God work in your life so that people give generously to you. Here's what Jesus wants, folks. Following Jesus means that our generosity will always be rewarded. Every one of these commandments comes with an instruction for a good reason. Jesus wants His disciples to take the wild step of faith to believe that Jesus knows what life is and how it works, and to trust God to do just what Jesus said. Because He knows, and we should remember, that obeying Jesus can be hard, but it's literally impossible to outgive God. You can't do it. In every one of these commandments, God has already shown generosity. So that He wouldn't judge and condemn you, He put His Son Jesus on the cross. He forgave you fully so that you could pass that forgiveness on to others. He will provide for you and assures you that you may not be wealthy, but you will be cared for and you will be provided for and invited you at every level of income and in every season of life to be as generous as you dare, trusting that your heavenly Father can move in the hearts of people, even unbelievers, to make sure that you, His precious daughter, you, His precious son, are provided for because you cannot outgive God. Imagine this, someday your time will come to be face-to-face with the Lord, and you'll see Him as He actually is. And you'll know in that moment that I didn't tell you the half of it. And as much as I bragged on Jesus and told you how good He was, I didn't come anywhere near telling you how good, faithful, loving, just, holy, merciful, kind, every measure of what good is, He is perfect in it. Do you think in that moment when you see Him as He actually is, you're going to turn to Jesus and say, you know, now that I see you, I really wish I would have been more critical. People hurt me along the way. I really wish I would have held on to my resentments. Now that I see you, I regret forgiving people. Now that I see your home, I regret being generous. I could have enjoyed my stuff and kept it in my grasp. I wish I would have. Do you think any of those things are going to happen? In that moment, if we have regrets, it's going to be this, when we see Him as He is and know Him fully as He already knows us, the only regret we'll have is that we didn't trust Him more and we didn't trust Him sooner. So here's the simple invitation. Start now. Invite the life, the power of God and Jesus into your life so that you'll see that every time He speaks, He tells you the truth. And by all means, if you don't know Him as your Savior, listen, I'm giving you His instructions for life, but let me be clear, these instructions are for His disciples. You don't have the spiritual capacity to live this way unless you have Him first. You can understand the wisdom of this and resolve to do it, but you will find yourself again and again spiritually frustrated and still questioning the most fundamental thing of all, which is whether God loves you and has forgiven all your sins. That's available right now, this morning, in the breath you just took. So for those of you who already know Him and you're sure of it, Resolve before Him personally to trust Him and obey Him that He cannot be outgiven and that every generosity in every way, attitude and action will be rewarded. And if you don't know Him, my invitation to you is to trust Him right now. Can we pray together, please? Let me give you just a moment to yourself.
I'll start with the last group I mentioned. If you're not absolutely certain that Jesus is your Savior and boss, can I invite you to make this the moment? And say to Him in prayer, He'll understand. It's not magic words. It's a personal trust. It's a moving your trust from yourself to Him. Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. Save me. I've blown it. I've sinned against you. I haven't taken you into account. I've lived my own way. I'm sorry for all that. Please forgive me. I trust your death, your resurrection to give me life. Please save me. Forgive me. Take charge of me. If you do that, all I would ask is that you'll let us know on that card. What will happen when you do is we'll pray for you. We'll be the happiest group of people in our office tomorrow when we see that you've written down your decision. We'll pray for you, and we'll do whatever you want us to do, whatever needs to be done to help you continue to grow in your faith. And if you're already a Christian, this is the solid foundation. It's Jesus. It's His teaching. It's His truth. Will you take him seriously and move into obedience and do what he said? Will you be generous with others? Will you be generous with God as he was first generous towards you? Of those things, the critical spirit, the forgiveness of others, the generosity in giving, if you identified one thing that's particularly hard for you, talk to him about it right now. Say, Lord, change my heart and I'll do better. I'll obey you more. I'll trust you a little bit farther in this area of generosity that you've shown me this morning. If someone's hurt you deeply and you have refused to forgive to this point, name them and say, God, I'm leaving them in your care. I'm turning them over to you. Lord, work here. Change hearts. Change lives. I pray for those who might be just on the edge of faith and may have objections or reasons to put you off and not call out to you right now and be saved, I pray, God, that by your grace, you'd pull them across the line. You'd convince them and persuade them, and they would turn to you right now and say, Lord, forgive me. Forgive my sins. Give me eternal life. Take charge of my life. Be my Savior, my Lord. And for the many Christians here who are have been taught, and I'm being taught to every day, to live contrary to you by our world, our culture, my own selfish nature. Help us to trust you enough to be generous. In Jesus' name.